about Deuteronomy 22:28 and 29. And um, there's perhaps it's, it's uh, good that I go back and just read that text to you so you'll remember what the question was. I know it kind of stuck in some of your minds and you might have been confused. It says this. If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who's not engaged, seizes her, lies with her, and they're discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 coins of silver. She shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. Now, there's a very clear biblical principle there, and there are a lot of aspects of it we could talk about, but the simple command of the Scripture was that if a, a man lies with a virgin, he has violated her. And because he has violated her, he is to marry her. And that marriage is for life with no possibility of divorce. Now, that's from Deuteronomy. Back in Exodus chapter 22, we get a little bit of an insight into that same principle in its original giving at the time when God gave the law on Mount Sinai. Listen to what it says. Exodus 22, verse 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who's not engaged, lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. Same principle. If you lie with someone, you're to marry them. You say, well, it says in both cases she's not engaged. If she was engaged, what happens? You don't want to hear what happens. You get stoned to death because that's adultery. Under the Old Testament law, adultery resulted in God's capital punishment law because violation of a marriage Adultery. And by the way, when you were engaged in the Old Testament, that was a binding legal covenant. And God saw it as that which constituted the initial act of commitment to marriage. And so when marriage is violated, you violate someone that belongs to someone else. There was a death penalty. But where you violated a virgin that didn't belong to anyone else, then the penalty was, since you had violated her, you were to marry her. Now, in verse 17, it adds a component that I think is very important. It says, if her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, then he pays money equal to the dowry for a virgin. Now, let me just give you the basic, simple principle. Uh, when Josh McDowell was here a few weeks ago, he was telling you that you should not engage in premarital sex because you might get venereal disease. That was what he said, about a hundred different ways, but that's basically what he said. <laughs> you should not have premarital sex or extramarital sex because you might get venereal disease. You will sin against your body, 1 Corinthians. Well, there's another issue. And there's a more positive component in sexual restrictions that God lays down, and it is this. You should never engage in premarital sex because God exalts virginity. God has put the highest premium on personal purity. It isn't just a case of 
am I going to get VD? That's a very self-serving approach. That's a very selfish approach. And that's really a backwards approach to morality. I, I don't do certain things because I'm afraid of the consequences. That is a very low level of commitment to morality. Wouldn't you agree? There's got to be something other than that to constrain me. And if you go through the, the Old Testament or the New Testament, for that matter, you will find that God exalts virginity. Why? Because God has designed one man and one woman to come together in a union for life. God has not designed lots of people for lots of people. God has not designed multiple sexual unions, one for life. And the premium here is put on the sanctity of virginity. And it was so sacred and so highly prized that when a guy came along and took away a girl's virginity, he literally scarred her for life. And she became damaged goods to a young man who was pursuing a godly woman. And a virtuous woman and a virgin. And the reality then was that this woman might, because she had been violated, not be taken by someone else as a wife. Because her virginity had been violated. Furthermore, young men needed to know that they could not run around doing this without consequence. So whenever that was done, the command was, you marry that girl. And if her father will not consent, and that's understandable in some cases, right? Because a father, in his own wisdom and in his own knowledge of his daughter and knowledge of the, the young man, even if he forced himself on the girl, might say, I refuse to allow that to happen. And in that case, the young man would be required to pay an enormous sum of money. An enormous sum. The sum of money you would only really pay once in your lifetime, and that was for the woman that you were to marry, to sort of endow the father for taking his daughter, which was the custom. If the young man went to the father, or if the girl went to the father, and the father found out about this union, and he refused to let the young man marry his daughter, then that young man was required to pay an enormous price. And God was saying, you cannot take away someone's virginity without some severe consequences. Number one, it means that you have now committed yourself to a lifetime with that girl and no divorce under any condition is ever possible. And if the father says, I'm sorry, I'm not going to let that happen, I'm not going to allow that to happen, then you will fork over an enormous sum. Now, that would restrain young men from running around invading the lives of young ladies with their lustful desire. You say, why does this, why does this only talk about men that seduce women? Well, you don't have to be Phi Beta Kappa to know that the sexual desires of men and women are different in terms of nature or character. And men, more rapid in their lustful intensity, wind up 
in the seducer's role unless the woman is a professional seductress, and that can be a reality, but she's far from being a virgin. But a virgin woman is not nearly so susceptible to the driving passion of lust and its intense movement and progress as a man. And so inevitably the man winds up seducing the virgin. And the Bible simply says if you do that, you marry her. And if her father says no to that and it's not possible for you to marry, then you pay a great price. This to restrain people from taking this kind of action. Now, how does that relate to today? Well, a number of principles come out of it. Principle number one, there is a tremendously important sense in which God has exalted virginity. That's the most precious possession that a woman has. The most precious possession she has. She should not yield it up to any other than her husband. And no man has a right to take it. On the other hand, if someone does take it. He is to go to the father when it is known and if and he should make it known and she should make it known. And the father has the right to determine whether she should or should not marry him. Now, let me throw in a little sort of um, aside. You say, well, what if I don't have a Christian father? What if I don't have a Christian mother? then I think it would be very well for, for some godly man to step into that role to give wise counsel about the situation. You say, well, now, wait a minute. Here's another scenario. What, 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 if, what if a girl has had sexual relationships with three or four different guys over a period of time? And what if, what if this isn't the first guy? Which do I marry? Now, you've already compounded the problem because having yielded up your virginity and then having compounded it by having relationships with more than one person, you, you are now beyond the divine ideal. You understand? Now you are utterly dependent on the grace of God. So how do you operate in that kind of condition? You start from ground zero. You go back and say, all right, God, I accept your grace and your forgiveness for my past sin." And starting now, I want to live my life in your grace as if I was starting all over again. Remember in the book of Hosea, and Hosea married uh, a woman named Gomer. I'd say anybody marrying a woman named Gomer was about to have trouble. She turned out to be a prostitute. She sinned against him, violated uh, her marriage covenant, her marriage vow numerous times. And she, she had children. She had children out of wedlock. She had um, illegitimate children. And you know what he named them? Not my child. That was that was a kid's name. That this is not my child. <laughs> he didn't want anybody mistaken anything about who, who these kids were. So she was she was a prostitute. One day, you can read the book of Hosea, it's fascinating. He chased her. And he kept forgiving her and wanting to bring her back from her harlotries. And he kept this up and kept this up. And he tried, he even supported her. He even tried to take care of her. And she was, she was wretched and dissolute. And he chased her and took care of her. Finally, she hit the, the, the absolute pits and she wound up stark naked on a slave block. 
And he went into town and he saw her being auctioned. This is his wife. And she's up there being auctioned. And he bought her. He bought her. That's that's the heart of a redemptive God, isn't it? And then you know what it says in Hosea? It says he took her to himself as his virgin. There's something wonderful about the grace of God, isn't there? Something wonderful about the forgiveness of God. No matter what may have been the past, we confess that, set that aside, and say, God, I want to begin right now. And I want to have a a brand new start. And I want to look at myself as if it's all brand new. There's a sense in which you can start at that point. And if someone comes along now and invades that sort of new spirit of virginity, then I believe you must call attention to the fact that you fall under this scripture. You understand what I'm saying? You now know what is required. And should that happen, there's no excuses, right? Because you know the ideal. You know the standard. If you want to start with a fresh start in the spirit of, of a virgin and say, I want to be that pure woman, I want to be that pure guy, if you violate that, you understand that God says you marry. And I'll just give you a little insight. If you marry, you will be obedient to God. And what does God do to people who are obedient? What does he do? Blesses them. If you don't marry, you will be what? Disobedient. What does God do to people that are disobedient? Let me give you a little insight. You say, well, I don't know if, we're, if we really love each other. I don't think you know what love is really at that point in a relationship. But if two people did what was right and were filled with the Spirit, God would bless their marriage, right? And if two people experienced all the romance and all the hoopla and all the bells and whistles and all the drama and all the passion and all the compatibility and they got married and walked in the flesh, what would happen to their relationship? Disintegrate. What makes a great marriage is that Christ is the center of it and two people walk in the Spirit and obey God. And let me tell you something, young people. The level of romance and the bells and whistles and the passions that you feel or don't feel prior to your marriage have absolutely nothing to do with whether that marriage will be a success. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. The only thing that dictates the success of that marriage is that you walk in the spirit in obedience to Christ. And if he's the focal point of your marriage relationship, it'll be all that marriage could ever be. So at some point in your life, you, you've got to quit buying the lie of our culture that that marriage is the natural product of lustful passion. It isn't. It should be the result of two godly people knowing the will of God. And the will of God is, if you sleep with somebody, you marry him. You say, well, now, wait a minute. 
what if, what if this was a year ago and, and we did this? Should I go back? My answer would be yes. If you want to be obedient to God, you ought to go back and talk to that person and say, this is what the Bible says. Are you willing to bring this up to your parents? And let God work through them. Or if you don't have godly parents, are you willing to sit down before a Christian counselor and, 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 and submit ourselves to the leading of the Spirit of God through his life about this? If you really want to, to live in the perfect plan of God, then you have to do what is right. I mean, th these are things that are hard, but this is God's standard. And you can determine whether you're going to live in obedience or not. And you can therefore determine whether you're going to live under blessing or not. It's a very simple principle. When you sleep with someone, you have now violated that person. You have done what only a marriage partner has a right to do. And therefore, God says, my will is that you marry. Now, we're not talking about an absolute situation with no other component because the scripture says you have to go to the father and he has to give approval. So God will work through those godly parents or God might work through a godly counselor, a mature man of God, someone you trust who could give you wisdom and insight into that. But the principle doesn't change. And I realize, you know, we get ourselves so scrambled up into omelets that could never be unscrambled. You know, like the, the woman who kept marrying guys and they kept dying. And then the Pharisee said, whose wife will she be in heaven? I mean, it was a moot point. Uh, you get to the point where the Bible doesn't talk about your situation because you're so far out of line with Scripture. The other component I would mention is what about when you when you sleep with a prostitute? And a prostitute is, is anybody who gives herself away for a price or not a price. I always remember the, the story of the guy at the banquet, the old story, who was sitting next to a beautiful woman. He said, uh, would you go to bed with me for $50,000? She said, uh, well, yes. He said, would you go to bed with me for $5? She said, what do you think I am? He said, we've already established what you are. We're only negotiating the price. Now, if you're talking, if you're talking about, if you're talking about a person who is a prostitute, every passage in the scripture that talks about prostitution says, run, right? Right? Proverbs, get out of there before you get, before you're dead. First Corinthians six, flee, get out of there. You're not talking about a virgin. You're not talking about a, a person to whom purity is, has value. You're talking about some kind of a some kind of a harlot who gives herself away to whoever wants her. So these are very important elements in understanding that passage. Does that help a little bit clarify things? But, you know, what we want to do, young people, is, is get up to the standard that God would have us live at. And if you have any, any more questions about that, I'd be glad to answer them around campus. So would uh, any of the folks who are here to help you. Okay? All right. Questions? No questions. Some questions.
Anybody have an, another question you want to ask? It's all right. It's all right. I have a few more things I'd be happy to say. Okay, here we go. It seems like there's a lot of controversy over whether moms should work or not, and I was just wondering what your viewpoint is. Good. Thank you for asking. Um, there's a lot of controversy over whether moms should work or not, and uh, they want to know my feel. My <laughs> if you if you are studying that, you can get a little book I wrote on the, the role of women, which just talks about what the Bible says. But probably as good a, a passage of scripture as any is Titus. Titus um, chapter two. It says, this is good to just read from verse 1. As for you, speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. What he means here is teach things that are true, sound. Then he says, going into some practical application, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older men. Now he talks about older women. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. It's wonderful, isn't it, to know that older women are to be teachers. And what are they to teach and who are they to teach? Verse 4, here's the key. The older women in the church are to teach the younger women to encourage them to love their husbands. I like that. To love their children, to be sensible Pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Now, it seems to me pretty clearly outlined in this text that older women are to teach younger women that the priorities of life, love your husband, love your children, live a pure life work at home, and so forth, are clearly laid out. Let me, let me support just that simple point of reference with uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. It talks about a widow here in 1 Timothy 5, 9. And the church had responsibility to care for widows when a woman's husband died and the church was responsible to follow up and care for her. And the kind of woman the church was to care for is described here. Verse 9. Let a widow be put on the list. That means she's on the list for care by the church, the provider needs, because she has no father. She's old and the father's died, implied. She has no husband. He has died. So the church has to care for her. Put her on the list if she's not less than... Only if she's not less than 60 years old. Now, if she was under 60, don't put her on the list. Why? Well, what should she do? She should remarry. She should remarry. It even talks about that later on. But if she's over 60, put her on the list. If she has been, please note, nine, a one-man woman. That's the Greek. Support her if she has been a one-man woman. It doesn't mean she only had one husband. She might have had three husbands if, she, if they all died at different points in time. That one-man woman means that she was devoted to the man who was her husband. She was not adulterous 
either either in act or in heart. Then it says, verse 10, if she has a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, and here you see the focal point of her home, her home is where she brought up children. Her home is where she offered hospitality to strangers. If she washed the saints' feet, if she assisted people in distress, and if she devoted herself to every good work, that's the sphere of a woman's influence. It's the home where she cares for strangers, where she meets the needs of people in distress, like the woman of Proverbs 31 who works very hard to clothe her own family, and even like the lady in the New Testament who made clothes, you remember, for the poor who were cold during the winter. The sphere of a woman's priority, influence, and operation is in the home. That is explicitly clear in Scripture. No question about it. The, the godly woman of Proverbs 31, who is the model of Old Testament womanhood, was one who was working in the sphere of her home. She was clever, she was enterprising, but the home was the focal point of her life. Now, that is the principle. Where do you go from there? Does that mean that under no conditions can a woman work outside her home? Well, even the woman of Proverbs 31, you remember, bought a field and cultivated the field and, and gained a profit from the field and was very, very frugal in the way she saved money so that she could use it to meet the needs of others and so forth. So I believe there is a, there is a place for the enterprising woman. Now, the point is this. When a woman has a husband and a home, her priority is to the husband and the home. When a woman who has a husband and a home has children, her priority is to the children. And no sacrifice of the husband or the children can be made. Whatever she might be able to do, and this is where she has to be led by the Spirit, whatever she might be able to do, which will not negatively but positively impact her relationship to her husband and her children and her home and to the hospitality of strangers and to washing the saints' feet and to helping the people in distress. Whatever she might do that does not negatively impact that, she can do if she has viable purpose in mind and not the purpose to get a better wardrobe or buy a new Mercedes or upgrade her house but somehow to use her God-given abilities for the advancement of the kingdom or the assistance of her family or the meeting of the needs of others, whatever she can do. Obviously, when a woman has small children, there is a, there's an intensity of devotion and commitment that God has designed that, that demands all of her, all of her. I know when, when our... Children were born and raised. I know Patricia, we've talked about this a number of times through the years, didn't sleep through the night more than maybe a few times, a handful of times in the first, you ready for this, seven years of our marriage because we always had little babies. And that was God's design. Her whole life was devoted to that to caring for her children and her husband and her home and providing hospitality and all of that. She's doing everything she can to make sure that when I'm gone, she gets on the list. 
But that's the woman's priority. An enterprising woman can do some things on the side, but nothing that causes her children to be given over to the care of someone else. It's so absolutely basic and essential that the mother have that responsibility. Okay? Yes. I think one of the reasons your, your response to the Deuteronomy question was so uh, shocking was uh, maybe there's a, a not a complete understanding of your position of the relationship of the law to the Christian today and, and whether, I guess you use the word biblical mandate and sure. principles. And so I think maybe it might be helpful if you clarify right. that a little bit. Uh, simply stated, and, I, and I, I'm not going to take you through a whole lot of things, but simply stated, and this is a this is an underlying principle that you can use in the in your study of the Old Testament. Everybody says which part of the Old Testament is relevant to us, right? What what part of it is relevant to us? What part of it is cultural, ceremonial, civil? What part of it belongs to Israel? Simple, very simple. Initially, whenever the Old Testament speaks on a relationship, and by the way, all laws. Are you ready for this? And all morality regulate relationships. All of them. The first five commandments regulate your, one's relationship to whom? God. Second five, man. All commands, all issues of morality deal with relationships. All right. Whenever the Bible speaks of a relationship that transcends any nation, or any ethnic group, or any time period, or any framework of national identity. Whenever the Bible speaks of a relationship that transcends any specific time or people, it is then speaking about a general truth, right? So ask yourself the question. Does virginity transcend any particular time and culture? Of course. Does marriage of course. Does divorce? Of course. Does fornication? Of course. Does adultery? Those are moral issues that relate to relationships that transcend just Israel. For example, in Exodus 22:17, I, I read you where it says that if the father refuses to let you marry his daughter, then you just pay a sum of money and he has the right to refuse. You go all the way to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7. It says right in 1 Corinthians 7, the same thing, essentially, that a father has power over his daughter. Uh, let me read it to you so you, you have it. First, right at the end of this seventh chapter where he's talking about marriage, listen to verse 36. If any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she sh should be of full age, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He doesn't sin. Let her marry. Here's a situation where a girl's reached full age, she wants to get married, and the father is still in control. Because God has protected women under the umbrella of a father until they can be protected under the umbrella of a husband. And a father has the responsibility to secure and protect that girl's purity. That's not just an Old Testament principle, that's a New Testament one. And it says here, Paul is saying, look, if she wants to be married, she's of full age, and it must be so. That is, uh, it's compelling to, for, to her to be married, she needs to be married, then let her marry. And the 
the power to do that is in the father's hand. Then in verse 37, but he who stands firm in his heart, here's the father who says, no, uh, I'm standing firm in my heart and I'm not under constraint by her to, to, to let her marry. I have authority over my own will and I decided this in my own heart to keep my virgin daughter a virgin. Paul says you do well. In either case, the father has control. Now, there's something that transcends Israel. So all you have to ask yourself is, is the issue that I'm dealing with here something that's bigger than this nation? Is it a moral issue in a relationship that is supra-cultural? Okay? And whenever you see that, you know that what is being said transcends any sort of time and place. Another issue would be divorce. You can go back into Deuteronomy 24 and read a whole section about divorce that still applies because marriage transcends that time and place. It's just as important now as it was then. So that's one of the key principles. Okay? Yes? In regards to last night's sermon in Second Peter and the angels going after strange flesh, that's what I, I see a correlation in Genesis 6. Is that possible today? Why and why not? Why, why not? That's a very good question. Uh, this, we'll stop with this last question over here, okay? Uh, Almost didn't see you. I was preaching on Genesis. Uh, well, I was preaching on Second Peter. We had a great time last night tracking down the angels that sinned and who they were. And we were in this little discovery process, picking clues out of the Bible. We finally ended up at Genesis 6. What happened in Genesis 6, I believe, was that demons, fallen angels, called sons of God, because that's a title used in the Old Testament for angels who were got, created by God, cohabitated with the daughters of men, and produced some monstrous beings, uh, men of old, men of renown. Uh, there's even the, the use of the term Nephilim, giants. Satan, I, I mentioned, wanted to pollute the human stream. So demons, in some kind of strange and bizarre way, took on male form and impregnated, impregnated women producing some mixture of demon-human child, some demon-human product, bizarre. You say, well, how in the world could that be? I have no idea. I just know that's what it says. They went after strange flesh. And he compares it, Peter compares it to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels came and the homosexuals in Sodom tried to rape the angels. So you had men going after angels. In Genesis, the same sin in reverse. You had fallen angels going after women. And that same kind of perversion in reverse. So the scripture says that God took those demons. that try, We say, why did they try to do that? They wanted to create a race that couldn't be redeemed. You see, a demon-human race would be unredeemable. Because demons are unredeemable. There's no redemption for demons. And as soon as they pollute the human stream, humans are unredeemable. And this was Satan's ploy to so destroy the human race by intermingling it with some kind of demonic life that it was beyond redemption. And so God just literally drowned the whole world and drowned all the product of that union along with all the rest of the wickedness in the world. And the question then is, why don't the demons do it again? Could it happen today? And the answer, the best answer I know is this. The reason that God bound those demons who did that and put them in Tartarus. That's, that's the word for the lowest hell. That was in Greek mythology. The word for the lowest 
most horrible hell. He calls it the pit of blackness and has kept them there since they did that. There are some demons who have been bound since Genesis 6 in this pit of blackness, and they'll be there until they're cast into the final lake of fire and they'll never escape. The reason he took the demons that did that and put them in the pit was so that other demons wouldn't do the same thing. And the demons don't want to go to the pit. You remember the demons in the in the, the country of Gadara? Remember when Jesus met the, the two people in the cave cutting themselves? And all these demons. And what did they say in Luke 8, 31? They said, do not send us to the... They don't want to go to the pit. And they said, are you here to torment us before the time? Please don't send us to the pit. You remember, and Jesus sent them into a bunch of pigs who did a swine dive into the Dead Sea. You remember the story. Matthew 8. You didn't know about that dive, huh? But... I believe the reason that sin has not been repeated, the best understanding is, I mean, you could say God doesn't allow him to do it, but the best understanding is it isn't repeated because of the severity of the punishment that was given to the demons who did it originally. It could be done. I'm, I'm sure there are some demons that might want to do it. In fact, even Hollywood made a movie out of it. The movie was called Rosemary's Baby. And the whole story was about demons impregnating a woman to produce a demon-human monster. That's really what happened to Genesis 6. I suppose it could happen, but the demons were bound in the black pit of torture, and they've been there all this time, and that puts the fear, apparently, in the rest of the demons. That's part of what restrains the demons from doing what they might otherwise do. Um, I was wondering if you will define gossip for me, and... I want to know if you think it's right for somebody, if they know without a shadow of a doubt that it's a fact, uh, to tell someone even though it has nothing to do with them. That's good. Um, gossip is what the mouth says with the purpose of satisfying an evil intent in the heart. Okay? Gossip is what your mouth says with the purpose of satisfying an evil intent in your heart. You know what I'm driving at? When you gossip, you're saying something about someone else, not with a redeeming purpose, but with a purpose to injure them or to elevate yourself. That's why you say. If I go to someone and I say, I have a friend who has fallen into an adulterous relationship, I want you to meet me and I want to get on my knees and I want to pray with you about that friend. And I, want to, and I want you to go with me and confront that friend. That's not gossip, right? Because your intent is redemptive. Your intent is to restore. Your intent is, is a brokenness and a broken heart and grief. And very carefully and judiciously you share to bring about a redemptive end. Gossip is where... I know something about someone and I say it for the personal gain that I get. It satisfies my anger toward them. It satisfies my animosity toward them. It may, makes me look good compared to them. So it rises out of that evil intent. And the last thing you asked was, should you repeat something? Yeah, if you know it's a fact and it has nothing to do with the person, why? For what reason would you do that? 
It has no it has no value. The only time you ever speak of something evil about another person is when one you are speaking it in a context of restoring and redeeming that person. Two, you are speaking it in a context of warning the person himself or other people. And maybe you don't even have to say who it is or whatever. Um, or when the person has fallen into this pattern of sin is totally unrepentant, right? And you're going through Matthew 18. Like if I go to you and you have committed a sin and you won't repent, then I have to tell somebody to bring with me. That's redemptive. And I have to tell the church eventually if you still don't repent. And that's even redemptive because the whole church is to go after you to resolve that issue. But just repeating stuff about people for self-satisfaction and for some personal gain is, is a form of gossip. Okay? Well, these are good questions. I wish we had more time. Just relax for a moment because we're going to have a little ministry in music, right? <laughs>